All right. Well, uh, I'm Dave, and I'm not Russ, and Russ is downtown this morning, and I'm here. Uh, I'm one of the pastors at the downtown congregation, if you don't know who I am. And um, we are taking a couple-week uh, break from our series uh, in 1 Corinthians right now to uh, focus on the week of Easter and uh, the week building up to it. And maybe you've picked up on this throughout the worship this morning that we're going to talk about Christ's triumphal entry riding into Jerusalem uh, this morning. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and go to Luke uh, chapter 19. And um, this is pretty easy. Uh, Carly kind of referenced it a second ago to kind of get in this um, kind of Easter turkey coma like at Thanksgiving when you get the tryptophan going in your body and you just kind of, oh, we're here at Easter and, um, you know, where are the marshmallow peeps? Um, what's the dress I'm going to wear? The hat, is my shirt pastel enough for you? Um, and I just, I just encourage us, uh, one of the things we're not going to take a break from this morning is this. We've been asking a lot of hard questions in this First Corinthians series, and I think there's some hard questions for us to ask this morning out of this text. So uh, fight against the, uh, the Jesus dress down for me so I can dress up for him, and that's what Easter's about this morning. And lean in and let's engage with one another and ask, um, ask maybe a pretty hard question for us this morning. Paul makes it really clear in First Corinthians 15 uh, he says this in fifteen seventeen that if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith if Christ hasn't been raised. This is a massive, massive deal that we're talking about over these next two weeks. This is not just some blip on the radar of our Christian calendar. When we come to this week in the history of the world in the historical supernatural reality of the redemption of Christ that he accomplished through his death and his resurrection, we're not talking simply about an aspect of our life as Christ followers. We're talking about the epicenter of our reality. This is the lens by which you and I should look at our very existence every single day. So this isn't the holiday circuit. We're not taking a break for Christmas, taking a break for Easter. And I'd encourage you, and this is convicting for me, if this is the only time that you stop to contemplate or to meditate on the significance and the implications of who Christ was and what he accomplished in his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection, the self-substitutionary atonement for our sins, uh, it would be tragic if this is the only time we do this, guys. So let's read this passage in Luke, Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 44, and then we'll kind of dig into it. Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, untie it. And bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untie it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and 
and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying this colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. As they brought it to Jesus, they th- or, and they replied, the Lord ne- needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children, within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So what are we talking about here this morning? The thing that I would love for us to camp out in, there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about in here. There's a lot of historical things, and we're going to touch on some of those things. But the thing I would like for us to spend some time for us engaging in this personally today would be this. It's verses 41 through 42 when Jesus is approaching into Jerusalem. It says that he wept when he saw the city. And he said this statement, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And the question I want us to kind of dig in with is, is what would bring you peace today? I mean, I would wager that most of us got up this morning made the trek here, or most of us get up almost every morning, most of the things, the pursuits that we do in our lives are aimed really at that. I mean, we don't like consciously wake up and say, I'm going after peace today. But isn't that really kind of what's riding underneath all of it? This is why I'm I'm doing the things I'm doing today is I believe this is going to deliver. It's going to give me some peace. So let's ask ourselves that question. Do you know what would bring you peace today? What is it? Think for a second. Better marriage? Being married? Better kids? Kids? Better job? Job? (laughs) Safety? Financial security? the fame or the recognition you desire, what would bring you peace today? Not living in fear constantly? The approval of those that you want approval from? What is it? What would bring you peace today? Think about this. Are you sure if you got the thing that you're thinking about, it would deliver on what it promised? What makes you so sure? Where in your life narrative has that ever been true? That the thing that you got, the thing that you're running after, ah, I got it, peace, done, deal. 
What makes you think that your idea of peace is the same as God's? Are you interested in knowing if there is a difference? If you found out that there was a difference, that his idea of peace was different than your idea, what would that mean as far as your idea of peace goes? What would you do with that? Well, I'm going to answer every one of these questions in the next 10 minutes. I'm kidding. Uh, but there's a lot riding on this, y'all. I don't even think I can kind of get my own head around all of it. Um, but I think that that's how we kind of move and groove. We believe we know what will give us peace. And I think Jesus is challenging this notion head on in the triumphant entry. So let's go back to the text, and I'm going to tie in a little bit of background stuff and the significance of what's going on here so that we can really deal with this question. What would bring you peace? The first thing is this. Go to chapter 18. Just peel a page back the other direction. Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. Jesus spells out pretty clearly and straightforward to the disciples what's about to happen. He says this, he says, this is 1831, he tells the 12, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets and the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So he's talking about the Old Testament, all of the prophecy, and we'll see some more of this in the rest of the passage. He will be handed over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. It's pretty straightforward. Laying it out. Not a lot of confusing language. This is what's going to happen. Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. So we could kind of unpack that, but the thing I want you to note from this is that Jesus was fully aware of what was about to happen. He wasn't confused at all. He knew what he was going to do. And the disciples had no clue. They might have understood the facts of what was going on. They could have heard this is the timetable. But as far as understanding the meaning behind, the significance behind what was going on, it was completely hidden from them. They didn't understand. You can study this more in passages in John. Jesus says some things very clearly in there. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus wasn't a victim of Rome or of some angry Pharisees and Sadducees. He says that this is a command that I've received from my Father. This is a directive from God. This is what you're going to do, Jesus. Jesus replies in John 12, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's starting to unfold the picture of what his death is going to produce. We could look at a lot of other places in Scripture, but what I want you to grasp is that what is happening here is happening under the authority of God the Father. It is the outworking of his will. It is under his hourly direction. And Jesus is willfully carrying it out the commands of the Father, the timing and the things that are about to go down in this week, they are occurring 
as God's will for Christ. They're for his glory, and they're going to have massive implications. And we're going to have a lot of time to talk about this, but I'd love to kind of lodge this seed in your brain to think about this week because we not only think we know what's going to bring us peace, but we're timing hounds. Like we, we believe uh, that we understand how things should work themselves out even in the context of time. Not just what will bring me peace, but when it'll happen. And the world we live in, it's right now. What will bring me peace is something that is literally just right there and I need to get a hold of it and I can get a hold of it. I want it now. We're not going to dig into any more of that, but timing is an issue here and we need to understand that the timing is God's timing. He knows what's happening. Christ is being directed by him. The disciples are confused. So what's about to go down? What's about to happen? What's these massive implications? Well, we get a clue from a variety of different things. The first thing is this. We read that Jesus was coming riding in on a colt, and I'm going to kind of piece together some historical stuff. The Jewish people would have recognized this and associated it with Jesus acknowledging himself as the king of Israel. If you look back in passages like in 1 Kings 1.33, David has his son Solomon anointed as king. He says, take the Lord's servant with you and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule and take him down to Gideon. And there have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. This was something that was known in the royal passing down of kingship was that a donkey was used. So people would have seen Christ on a donkey and identified, okay, he's making a statement here. Jesus is the king in the line of David that Israel has been waiting for. Zechariah 9 is another prophecy that talks about this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. See your king comes to you, righteous and having a gentle and, and having or, or sorry, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you see, these people would have been studied in this. They would have they would have identified this. They would have understood that what he's doing in this moment is, is he's identifying himself as the long-awaited Messiah. The shouts that the people had in verses 38 through 39, these are not just made-up phrases. They didn't just kind of think like, hey, what should we yell now? These are recasting, calling out of prophetic utterances. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, 38. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is Luke 2.14, the proclamation of the angels at Christ's birth, who, he who was born king of the Jews. What we see here is a definitive shift as well from Jesus' public life. He would heal people all the time. You guys remember some of these instances where he'd heal somebody and say, don't tell anybody about this? The time's ready. Christ knows this. The Father has given the directive. It's time. I am the Messiah I'm coming, riding into Jerusalem. Everyone should be excited, right? The time has finally come. This is the climactic event in redemptive history that everyone's been waiting for. This is interesting. If we look carefully at the characters, and I want you to think about yourself within the context of these characters, I think we see something that should shake us up a little bit. And it'll lead us back into this question of what would bring you peace this morning. And the truth is, is this, that one group is really excited and one isn't. 
The disciples, some of the crowd, very excited, singing the shouts and praises. Pharisees saying what? Teacher, tell these guys, stop saying what they're saying. Rebuke them, because they're claiming that you're king, that you're, you're the Messiah. One group's excited, one isn't, but I'm going to suggest this, that neither understand what's going on. The disciples don't understand. The Pharisees don't understand. And ultimately, everyone, I think, including the disciples, see Jesus as a means to an end. So let's look at the disciples for a second. They're excited. Remember, Jesus had just made it very clear. We read the passage. What was about to go down in Jerusalem? He was going to die, but they didn't understand. They claimed him as Messiah and King. But think about this for a second. They had an idea of how that would look. What he was going to do. What that would mean for them. So much so that in another passage in Matthew, when Jesus was predicting his death, Peter took him aside and rebuked Jesus. And he said, never, Lord, that shall never happen to you. You're not going to go die. Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Why did Peter say this? Well, I'm going to suggest this. He was terrified. He was terrified. He was afraid of what the implications of the fact that he didn't understand the significance of what's going on. I know you just told me what's about to go on, but I don't understand that. Peter was someone who had left everything to follow Christ. And now Christ is going to go die and raise from the dead. What are you talking about? That's not going to happen. They had an idea of what this was going to look like, and it wasn't what Jesus was saying. Think about that. They're cheering for him to come in as king. They don't think he's going to die. Pharisees, the other party here, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Basically, tell them to stop identifying you as the Messiah. Why? Why would the Pharisees be doing this? We don't have the time to unpack all the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the context with Rome and the fact that Rome had given the power to the Pharisees and they were kind of the rulers over the Jewish people. And so, but the basic premise is this. And it's really, I think, the exact same thing as the disciples were saying, except it's inverted and it's applied negatively. That is to say, we are the religious leaders. We are recognized by Rome. We have the power and authority. We know the Old Testament law and the prophets better than all of these unlearned men, these disciples. If you truly were the Messiah, we would know. We would be the ones who would recognize you. And more importantly, you would align yourself with us. Don't you know who we are? If you come to power and this is all true, then we lose our power. We lose our position. It's kind of like how Southern people talk about sports when they're like, we won this week. My team, we, we won. What do you mean we won? They won. You might have supported them, but you see the context here? It's a sense of kind of like, I kind of want to get on the coattails of this thing and feel like I got ownership in this, that I made something happen here. Why did the Pharisees look to arrest him and put him to death? Luke 20, 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken a parable against them. So they knew they were on 
thin ice. And it says here, they were afraid of the people. You got two parties, both afraid. Disciples are afraid. Pharisees are afraid. What do you do when you get afraid? I'll tell you what I do. I find something to get behind or get excited about. I'm afraid I'm going to find something to get behind or get excited about. Or I set out to kill the thing that is causing my fear. Both parties didn't understand what was going on. The fear that was gripping, gripping them both, yet neither of them had an ability to understand or deal with that fear. I'm going to deal with my fear. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to kill him. I'm going to deal with my fear. Okay, no, you're not going to die. You're going to be king. You're going to be king. What will bring you peace today? This is where, I mean, get some traction mentally here, guys. The only thing that will is to have all of your fear dealt with entirely. Not partially, entirely. We're talking about peace here. When Christ is using this peace, the Greek word, it's not talking about some kind of temporary feeling. It's talking about something singular, unaffectable, true rest, quietness. Jesus wasn't just a means to an end to deal with the temporal, short-sighted understanding of the fear that both the disciples and the Pharisees were working through in their different means. He was coming to deal with the deepest desires of their hearts that they couldn't even fathom. That their fears were only an indicator of. I didn't come, here's another way to say this, I didn't come to fulfill your understanding of your desires. I came to fulfill the full reality of the desires that I set in your heart, like Ecclesiastes 3 says that he has set the eternity in the hearts of men. You don't even understand. <laughs> when you say you want peace, you have no clue what you're talking about. But I do. And that's what I'm coming to do. Jesus wept when he rode into Jerusalem. Two times in Scripture, this word's used. Jesus wept. Here in the death of Lazarus, in both instances, we see the same tension in the story. It's really interesting. I would encourage you to go back. I think it's John 11, Death of Lazarus. Study that in the context of what we're talking about this morning. Because you see the same tension with Mary. Lazarus, her brother, gets sick. He dies. They're hoping Jesus will get there in time because they know Jesus has the power to heal him. He doesn't. Mary's comments to Jesus are this, if you had only been here. Listen to the language there of Mary. If you had only been here, then what? He would have postponed Lazarus' death to a later date? She's saying something. She's saying, I know what would bring me peace right now. It's just that my brother wouldn't die. Later on, Jesus is saying, if you had only known today what would have brought you peace. In both instances, Jesus' tears reflect more than just sorrow and anguish over the factual situation. I'm not going to pretend to know the emotional realism of Jesus Christ right now. 
but the lack of understanding the hiddenness that everyone is experiencing. Is he weeping over that? Yes. That is to say, you think you know what will bring you peace, but it's not it. Mary, what you're saying is too small. Making me your king the way you think I need to be king is too small. Pharisees, putting me to death to keep the power that you want, it's too small. Your picture is too small. The peace I'm coming to accomplish is much larger than this. You're only seeing part of it. The peace you and I are looking for, the peace that is available to you today, it will only and has only been accomplished through Christ's death and resurrection. The sin, we can't even get into this, the sin that needed to be dealt with so that there could be peace between God and man. It's not something small, it's massive, cataclysmic. Perfect blood is required to meet that requirement. And without it, there is no peace. You're acting, I'm acting, we act like what Christ has come to do or the disciples, these people are thinking along these lines is just spruce up this version of our life. Make it the best it can be. But Christ is saying, I'm coming and going to my death and raising from the dead so that what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, what is mortal may be swallowed up by what is life. You hear the language of this? He's saying what you call life isn't even life. This is mortality. I am realigning, giving total definitions to things that you can't even grasp. John 10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. It's like muse, undisclosed desires of your heart. Familiar with the song? They don't even know they're writing beautiful truth. Listen to this in their, in their uh, this is their chorus. I want to reconcile. Imagine God saying this. I want to reconcile the violence in your heart. I want to recognize your beauty is not just a mask. I want to exercise the demons from your past. I want to satisfy the undisclosed desires of your heart, the desires you don't even understand. You too, I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. They're putting words, language, art, trying to express this thing the undisclosed desires, the things that we want that we can't even get our heads and hearts around. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to that place that you can't even put language to. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis, if I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. What is mortal may be swallowed up by what is life. So what do we do? Let me give you a couple really practical things to kind of wrap this up. The first thing is this. David, if you study the Psalms, Psalm 51 is something I would re- write down and go back, look at. It says something in there. He, he says, to restore unto me the joy of my salvation when you restore something, and I know this metaphor is going to break down at a certain point. If you're restoring a piece of furniture, is that something that happens instantaneously? The answer is no, if you restore furniture. It takes time, sanding, 
little details. Take the, all the hardware off, put it back on. It's a process to bring something from its broken state into a place of beauty. We, we kind of read a verse like that and we think like, okay, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, Lord. It's like kind of like flip the switch and let me feel the fullness immediately. Nothing in life works like this except electricity. So something in life works like this. <laughs> what he's inviting us into when he's saying take up your cross in Luke 9 is not just, hey, I did this for you, now go do this for other people. He's saying pick up the reality of what's going on here every single day. Take it up. Be captivated by it. Don't just save it for Easter. It's a process. It's an unfolding. It's something we've got to absolutely marinate ourselves in. And the second thing is this. So restore and take up. It's a process. Is this, and this should give us a lot of hope is as we stay in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5.23 says, since you live by the Spirit, if you're in Christ this morning and the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you, which is a promise in Scripture, if you read John 14, John 16, Jesus says, the counselor I'm gonna send to you will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He lives within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. He's talking about before his death, and talking about his death, because I've said these things, you are filled with grief, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. This is for your good. You think the disciples even had a clue of what he's talking about? Whoa, time out. This is not gonna happen. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. He will guide you into all truth. And then John 14, 27, write that down. This would be a great one to just hang out in all week. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Teach you, implying one, you do not understand. You need to be taught. Second, remind you, implying you will forget this. And so you need to be reminded. So don't waste any energy being ashamed about the fact that you don't remember this stuff. That's why I've given you the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Do you hear what is being said? You already have it. Peace is not something that you go and make. It's not something we're out there looking for. He's saying if you're in Christ this morning, peace is something you have. How do you and I live unafraid? We live as those who believe peace is not something we are looking for here on earth. It is something we already have in Christ. We have peace. You may not understand this. I may not understand it. We may not always live in it. I may forget it. I may need to be taught more about it. I may get distracted and tempted to place my hope for experiencing peace elsewhere. But this is one of the greatest realities of the Christian faith. We have peace. He is our peace. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. He himself is our peace. He himself. Singular. Not something we're waiting for. Jesus is not a means to an end. He didn't ride a donkey so I could have an Escalade. 
It's he's the end. We don't live to create peace. Think about this. Think about how much effort goes into this. We don't live to create peace. We live as those who have peace. We are the purveyors, the proclamators, the living foretasters of the peace that is already ours. We don't go to make it. We give out of the fact that we have it. Last week, Russ ended with Revelation 21. That passage in Ephesians I just referred to, Ephesians 2, 21 says, in Christ the whole building is joined together. He's talking about us. And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I'm gonna read Revelation 21 to us again to close us because we're waiting for something. We have something and we're waiting for something. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. For peace on earth again, Christ's presence, God living with man, dwelling with man. This is Revelation 21, one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He's talking about us. We are the New Jerusalem. We're the temple of the Lord, where the Holy Spirit dwells. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them, and he will be, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Peace. What will bring you peace today? Do you have peace? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you are our peace. Lord, we just, I just repent, Lord, so much of my life, so much of my energy, so much of my time is spent just ruthlessly and relentlessly pursuing things that I believe are going to deliver on that question. I am the disciples, I am the Pharisees just trying to find something to get excited about or trying to put to death something I'm terrified about because I have such a small understanding of the desires of my heart, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Teach us. Grow us in our understanding of what peace really is, what you came to do, the significance of what you accomplished on the cross in dealing with our sin, Lord. Thank you that you didn't just leave us to ourselves. Thank you that you didn't demand that we understood what was going on before you did it. That you don't shame us for it, Lord. So gently, Lord, as you gently rode in on that donkey, ride your donkey into my life. Ride it into our worlds. Bring entry 
of the reality of the cross and the resurrection right into our lives, disrupt the things, the ways that we're thinking about all this, Lord. Shake us loose. That we would understand the significance of what's going on here, Lord, and that we would worship you. That you would not be a means to an end, Father. You are the end. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. We're going to just have a couple minutes to um, meditate, think, contemplate. I encourage you to journal. If you want to, uh, just some time of silence. And I just encourage you maybe write down some of the things that, um, that maybe you're running after that you believe are going to give you peace. And maybe ask the Lord, speak into that stuff, Lord. Would you, would you bring some, even some tears into my own heart? Would I f- understand what was behind your tears as you wept at the things that they believed were going on. Um, So let's spend a few minutes doing that and then we'll wrap it up.